0: everybody and congratulations Doug and Leslie that is so exciting to watch you guys take a step of obedience and to be uh, baptized like that Um, this morning we're so glad you're able to be with us we're actually beginning a brand new series this morning as you can tell from the title it's called a 90-day trek through the Bible and uh, as you can probably already guess uh, what we're gonna be doing in this series is we're going to be spending the next 90 days and the several weeks in there to be overviewing and talking about the Bible And so for the next several weeks, over the course of the next 90 days, we're going to each weekend uh, preaching kind of front to back, sort of an overview of the Bible. And so if you're a person that's always wondered, man, what's the Bible about? Or if you're a person that's maybe never read the whole Bible and you're kind of curious to do that, um, in this series, we're going to give great opportunities to do that. So we're going to be preaching through, kind of teaching through the whole story of the Bible. In addition to that, and I'll be talking about this a little bit later, we're going to be challenging everybody in the whole church, our entire campus here, all the way from Power Kids uh, to Student Ministries to New Perspective and up to adults here, we're going to be challenging everyone to engage in the Bible in some way or another over the next 90 days. And so for some of you, uh, one of the challenges that we're going to put out to you, if you're one of those high-challenge people uh, that like to take a big one, is we're going to challenge you to actually read the whole Bible in 90 days. And uh, that is a big task, but some of you are crazy enough to do it. And so we're gonna challenge you to do that. For some of you, you're like, ain't nobody got time for that. And so uh, we have other challenges as well for you. Uh, We have uh, some Bible challenges that are a little bit more palatable and uh, maybe a little bit more manageable for some of you. But anyway, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later in the service, but we're gonna be challenging everyone who's part of the Medina East Campus over the next 90 days to engage in the Bible in one way, Um, or another. We're going to be teaching about it. We're going to be looking at next 90 days, Bible, 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 right? You get the idea. And uh, and so before we jump in on this series, uh, I thought it would be important that we would just pause for a minute and do an introduction. And so this week, before we start opening it and getting into it, I thought it'd be important if we just stopped and did sort of an introduction week. We kind of talk a little bit about some of the foundational and basic things because here's something I found in my life to be true. And I think this is just a thing thing. I think it's just true all the time that if you don't understand the basics of something, if you're you're kind of foggy on, on the fundamentals, it's gonna lead you to confusing places. It's gonna cause misconceptions. It's gonna bring you to places that are inaccurate. And so you gotta get the basics right first. Uh, just as a way of illustrating that and kind of as a way of displaying my own ignorance. Uh, when we first started the Medina East Campus here about two and a half years ago, I remember um, one of the first conversations we started to have together as a campus was we talked about kind of renovating our building. And we said, man, we need to renovate our building, we're going to, need to do a, a kind of a building project together. And I suddenly started finding myself in building meetings now, you got to understand, I'm a, I'm a Bible guy, and so all of my education that I have up to this point is centered around the Bible. All of my, um, all of my professional experience has really been in ministry, and so I know exactly nothing about building like nothing now luckily we're part of a team where there are some some people on our team um, who are very educated in this and and thankfully they were the ones who were leading the process but because I'm the campus pastor I had to be in these building meetings I had to kind of talk and act like I knew what people were talking about and say things like "Mm, yes okay yeah that concerns me yeah I got (laughs) you Uh, and, and say things like, "Yes, I, I concede to that," and stuff like that. Anyway, so um, I had this one meeting. I remember we were in this email thread, and it involved Jim. Jim's a guy on our staff, helps oversee building projects, knows what he's talking about. And there were some uh, contractors and, and the building manager, and we were in this email thread. And they said we might. They, they sent out this email. And they said we might have an HVAC issue. So they said we, we were having a, some problems with the HVAC. We kind of ran into a snag, and we needed to discuss it. So the email thread was going back and forth and the contractor said, you know, because of some unforeseen things, it looks like the HVAC unit we have is probably not gonna be the appropriate HVAC unit. We might need to consider getting a different HVAC unit. And then Jim emailed back and he said, well, this is actually a pretty big deal because we're gonna to need to go back to the budget. We're gonna to need to figure out if, if this is gonna affect us in a dramatic way. We need to re, you know, reconsider the HVAC thing. And so eventually these, these emails were going back and forth and I was reading them like, oh yes, okay, yes, I see. And, uh, and then, um, Finally, they said, Jim came to me and he said, dude, we have to have a meeting about, about the HVAC thing. This is gonna, this, if, we, if we don't catch this, this could be a serious issue. And so we need to have a conversation about the HVAC. So we need to pull everyone together and have a meeting. And I said, I said yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. And I, and I think it's necessary, especially if it's gonna affect our budget. Like we need to have this meeting. And then I said, but Jim, you have to answer a question for me and you can't laugh at me. I said, I might sound really dumb, but, but please, I said, what is HVAC? <laughs> I, what is HVAC? And I said, I, 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 I'm not completely stupid. I've been around building projects before, and I've heard people say that before, HVAC. But I've always just been like, yeah, you know, HVAC, yeah. <laughs> and and so, so I was like, what is HVAC exactly? And Jim, and Jim looks at me after laughing for a while. He's like, are you serious? I was like, yes, what is it? And he goes, it's, it's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. I was like, oh, That makes so much more sense. Thank you. Now I can go to the meeting and and at least pretend like I know what's happening and speak intelligently about the thing, right? And so the the reality is, right, you got to know the basics before you start anything. You got to understand the fundamentals. Otherwise, it can lead you into strange places. And so today what I want to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the basics before we get in the Bible. And I want to ask almost an insultingly simple question. And that's this. Here's the question I want to ask. What is the Bible? What is it? All right, so... So this is an important question. And for some of you, when you hear that, some of you might be thinking, man, you know what? I never asked that question before. I don't really know. Some of you might say, man, I, I grew up around it. I grew up in a church and we would, you know, we'd read the Bible and my parents have a Bible and, and, um, and I, I, I think I know what it is. But for some of you this morning, when I ask you that question, what is the Bible? Like If you had a friend that came up to you and they said, hey, what's the Bible? How would you answer that question? Some of you might say, well, I don't, I don't really know. I guess I never really thought about that before. But this is a really basic question that we need to know. What are the presuppositions you have about the Bible? Uh, my guess is for some of you, you might be thinking, well, I know what the Bible is, right? The Bible is, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sacred writing, right? It's, a, it's an ancient text that's written. It's sort of a religious writing, and, and like other religions have their sacred text. So for Christianity, um, this is like the religious text that we have. That's what it is, right? Some of you would say, well, I think, I think the Bible's kind of a book of morality, right? It's, it's got good morals. It's a good way to live. Um, I don't believe everything that's in it. I think there's a lot that's myth. Uh, but I think that it's got good basic principles. Like, right, we, this is the book we put our hand on when we're in court and we pledge in court. And, and, and the reason we do that is because we believe it's a good, moral, upstanding book. Some of you would say that. For some of you, you might say, I don't, I don't really even know what the Bible is. But I, I think it's, it's, it's about Jesus, and I kind of understand some of that is there as well. Honestly, for some of you, if I asked you what's the Bible, you might tell me if you're really honest, you might say, you know, I think the Bible honestly is an obstruction, it's sort of an obstacle to social advancement. And so the Bible is, is sort of regressive, it might be archaic, it is outdated culturally, it is outdated sexually. Uh, this book is, is, is sort of a, a, an old regressive way of thinking and, and to some extent it's a hindrance to our progress as a society and as humanity. This is an issue that's coming up right now, right? It's a very relevant issue. And so this last week, Supreme Court ruling, what was all that about? Well, the reason that it was such a big issue that homosexual marriage was considered something that's now illegal in every state, the reason that's a big issue is because of the biblical community. People who would look at this book and say, well, the Bible says that that's not the way that we should live. Well, the real question ought to be this then. Well, what gives this book any authority over any other? Why should we read this book? What is it, right? Every week we come here, if you're part of the Medina East Campus, and and if if this is your first time, you might not know this, but what we do every week when you come in is we say, get your Bibles out and open them. And then we say, "If, if, if you don't have a Bible, you can have one of our Bibles because we think it's really important that you have a Bible. We talk about it all the time, right? We say, turn to this page number. We encourage you to bring your own Bible. As we teach each week, the thing that we always say is, we oftentimes live this way, but the Bible says we should live this way. So let's live this way. And, and for some of us, we never ask the question. Yeah, but what is the Bible, and and why should it determine that I live this way and not this way? What makes it different than the other book? And so a lot of questions that way. And I just want to start this morning by just asking the question. Some of you like some of you, as you as you hear this, you're probably like, I already know what the Bible is, dude. I totally got this. And some of you, honestly, are probably like, just thank you for 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 asking that because honestly, I've been a little bit too embarrassed to ask. I don't know. And I assume everyone else knows, and I've been too embarrassed to ask. Well, the truth is not everyone knows. And so you're, you're actually part of the majority if you're like, I'm not sure what it is. And so we're just going to start there. And this week is an introduction. We're going to talk about what is the Bible. Now, um, I think it's probably obvious to say this, but I will, that the amount of time that we have this morning uh, does not give us sufficient time to cover the full answer to this question, all the considerations and all the variables. And so please understand that what we're doing this morning is cliff notes on that question. Okay? However, if you'd like more information on that, I want to let you know I have a ton of resources. I have a ton of, uh, of resources that you can read, books and research that's been done. And if you would like to get that information, um, you can. E- my email is in the program. You can email me um, or you can connect with me in the cafe, email anyone from our staff, and we'd be glad to send you any of those resources that you can read on your own. In addition to that, one of the things we're going to be doing through this whole series for the next 90 days is we're going to give you a phone number. So we'll put it up here on the, on the screen for you. This is a number that if you have any questions about anything related to the Bible for the next 90 days as we go through this series together, we want to encourage you to text your questions into that number. Okay, So you can text them in anytime. Um, And so if you're reading the Bible on your own and you you have a question about something you're reading, you can text us. If you have a question about anything that we're talking about this morning and you you want to text us, what we're going to do is we've we've actually created a podcast. And each week we're going to deal with those questions on a podcast. We're going to talk about... Um, about things that are relevant to where we're at in the Bible. And then we're going to deal with any questions that you might have as well. And so that's a number. You can write that down. You're also going to see that on the bottom of some of the slides in the PowerPoint today. So if you have any questions, please just feel free to text those in. And we will have men who are much smarter than me um, help you answer those questions, okay? And so uh, just want to get your hands on that. Okay, so what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Well, let's just go ahead and start. Okay, so I'm just going to start with a couple basic observations. I think probably a good place for us to start is, uh, is this, that when we talk about the Bible, it's important that we understand the Bible really is not a book. It's really not a book. It's more like a library, okay? Um, that is to say this, the Bible is not one book that was written by one person at one time, nor is it one book that was written by a group of people at one time. That's probably not the best way to understand the Bible. The best way to understand the Bible is more like a library, okay? So the picture that you should have in your mind when you think about the Bible should be less like a book and it should be more like this, okay? So like a Bible bookshelf. It is 66 manuscripts that are compiled together in one document and that's what we call our Bible. And so if you think about the Bible bookshelf for just a minute here, what you notice is that these 66 manuscripts that we have that comprise the Bible are kinda of categorized by, by, by sort of like volumes, right? And so the first volume of the Bible, for example, uh, would be the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are oftentimes called the Pentateuch. They're also called the Torah. Uh, these are the writings of Moses. And so uh, most scholars accept that these books were written by Moses. And so that's what we would call the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books, the first volume of the Bible. The next volume of the Bible that we see in the Old Testament is from Joshua to Esther. And this is what we would call the histories, okay? And the reason we call them histories is because they're historical. Um, They talk about people and places and times. They include things like chronology. They include things like genealogy, dates, and and stuff like that. And so so these books are what we call historical books. Um, And then the next volume of the Bible from Job to Song of Solomon is what we call poetry. And of course, poetry, as you can imagine, is poetic writing, poetic literature. That of course includes the Psalms, it includes Proverbs and those type of things. And so we have have the Pentateuch histories, we have poetry. The next kind of two volumes are the prophets. And that includes both the major and the minor prophets. Those books are written, the type of literature they're considered is prophetic literature. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Once you get into the New Testament, the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We call that the Gospel and Acts. And basically what those books are about, they're about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the stories of Jesus. The book of Acts is the story about the early church. And that becomes kind of the first volume of the New Testament. From Romans to Philemon is what we call Paul's epistles. And just to be clear, an epistle is not a little apostle. It's not what it is. An epistle, what that literally means is it means a letter, That's what it is, it's a letter. So these are Paul's letters to real people and real places and real churches and we have those recorded for us and so we have that. And then the last segment there, sort of this last volume is what we call the General Epistles in Revelation. And the General Epistles are letters that were written by other people besides Paul, so Peter and John, for example, and then Revelation um, is sort of the last book that we have of the Bible. So it's helpful for us, when you think about the Bible, it's actually way more helpful to not think of it as a book, it's better to think about it as a library. It is a collection of manuscripts, 66 manuscripts, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Another thing that is important to know about the Bible, uh, just as a quick overview of this, is the Bible was written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And so as I said, the Bible wasn't written by one person at one time, wasn't written by one group of people at one time. It was written by several authors, over 40 authors, over the course of about 1,500 years, a span of about 1,500 years. These authors were very, very different people um, from very, very different circumstances. 40 authors, three different continents, three different languages, this book was written. Um, the men who wrote the Bible um, were, were a variety of different ages. They, were, they came from different life circumstances. Some of the writers of the Bible um, were men of high notoriety. So for example, um, some kings helped write the Bible. David, King David, uh, wrote the book of Psalms. Um, king Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He, he wrote Proverbs. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, uh, also contributed to the Bible in the book of Daniel. And so you have these men of high notoriety who wrote the Bible. But not only that, you also have other guys who are of less notoriety. You have fishermen who helped contribute to the Bible. And so a variance of authors who kind of contributed to this, this, uh, this collection of manuscripts that we have that we call the Bible. Another thing I'll mention about the Bible that was sort of already alluded to is that the Bible utilizes many different literary genres. Uh, the Bible utilizes many different literary genres. And here's what I mean. The whole Bible, when you read the Bible, it was never intended to be read the same in different places. You're supposed to read the Bible differently in different places, some of you might not know that. And so, for example, um, some of the parts of the Bible are poetic. So Psalms and Proverbs, the first three chapters of Genesis, are poetic. They're poetry, and and poetry, as many of you know, is not intended to be read like history, and history is not intended to be read like prophecy. Um, you have to know what you're reading. An analogy I like to use on this is I like to use the newspaper. I don't know if any of you get the newspaper anymore, uh, but if you get the newspaper, right, like let's say that this morning you got up, you get the Sunday newspaper, what do you have? You have one newspaper, but it's comprised of many different literary genres. You don't read the sports the same way that you read the classifieds, right? They're, they're, they're written different because they're trying to accomplish different purposes. You don't read the obituaries like you read the comics, if you did, you have a really morbid sense of humor, right? That's not how that works. And so in the same way, when you read a Bible, you don't read poetry like you read history. You don't read history like you, read, like you would read prophecy. You don't read prophecy like you would read Paul's epistles or Paul's letters. You read them differently um, as it depends on um, that text. And so it's important to know that because some of the, the major contradictions that people believe are in the Bible can be easily explained away just because of a difference of literary devices that are used. Uh, Some of the biggest misunderstandings that people have about the Bible are simply because they read the whole thing the same way, which was never intended. It's 66 volumes, right? 66 um, uh, manuscripts compiled together, 40 different authors. It's not one book. It's a whole library, many different literary genres, and that helps us understand that Little bit. We will dig more into detail on this later as we go through the series, but I think it's important for us to know that. All right, so having said all of those things, so we kind of look about what the Bible is, here's the question then. If the Bible's not a book, but the Bible's a library, how did we get this library? Right? How did we get 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament? How did we come up with this library? Let me just give you a couple reasons that we have this library. Um, of manuscripts that we call our Bible. Okay, so here's the first thing. These books were passed down and they were recognized through generations. So why, did we, why do we have these manuscripts? Because they've been passed down generation to generation and they have been recognized, lived by, they've been considered authoritative, people have lived by and have died for um, these manuscripts that we have. Now I know for, for some of you, when I say that, that already creates a problem. And honestly, this becomes a problem. Most, most, most critics of the Bible, uh, that point that we just looked at is, is a big problem for them. Uh, because a lot of people would say, man, if the Bible's been something that's passed down, it's been 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 passed down, then how do we know that that hasn't been convoluted? How do we know that hasn't, that hasn't been polluted, added to, subtracted to? How do we know that's anything close to what the authors originally have written and meant for it to say, right? In fact, I'll just quote one critic in particular. There's a man named Kirk Eichenwald. He actually wrote an article in 2014 in Newsweek called The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Here's what he said. He said, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of a translation of a translation of a hand copies, copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. And basically in this article, he discredits the Bible because he says that it's been passed down time and time again. It's been so convoluted, it's been so distorted that you can't really trust what it says, right? And, and a lot of people have this argument. They say, well, if that's how the Bible works, it's kind of like the game of telephone. You right? guess remember telephone and you start you start with a message and you pass it down the line and by the end, it's not nearly the same thing. It's kind of funny. Um, it, kind of in that same vein, there's a game that came, over, came, came out recently called Telestrations. I don't know if you guys ever played it. It's basically like telephone except you draw and you write. It's hilarious. So this past week, actually this past week, my staff and I, we had this get-together and we were playing this game Telestrations. We were laughing so hard. And, uh, and, and so I actually brought kind of a copy of, of one of the rounds that we played in that. But basically, here's how the game works. You sit in a circle. There's like nine or ten of you. And, and you get out these flip boards. They kind of look like notebooks, but they're dry erase. And so you write down a word, you write down an item, and then you pass it to the left. And the person on the left reads that item and then they try to draw it. And then they pass that drawing to the left, and the person who sees that drawing has to try to guess what it is with the word. If that doesn't make sense, let me just show you, okay? So this is what our staff did. So the key word that on the on first round was bagpipes, okay? So someone wrote down bagpipes on that word. Now, after they wrote that word down, they passed it to the left, to the person on the left, and that person flipped the page and had to draw it, so they drew bagpipes, and that was the picture that they drew. Now, I think it's probably good for us just to pause and admire the artistic ability that exists on the staff of your church, all right? It's amazing. <laughs> Clearly, that's a man playing bagpipes, and so, and so, uh, so that person drew this. They ha- you have a one-minute time frame to do it, so they drew it. And then they passed it to the person on their left. And the person on their left took it, looked at that picture, flipped the page, and had to write down what they thought it was. That person said, bagpipes. Pretty good, right? We are now now a translation from a translation, and we still have 100% accuracy. Pretty good, pretty good. So then they passed it on to the left. And the next person took that, and they drew this. (laughs) I don't know what that is. What would you guess? I would guess a smoker's lung. But anyway, a musical smoker's lung. So anyway, so they they drew that, the person passed it over to the left, and the next person guessed, this is awesome, the person said it's a shaker, right? Like a musical shaker, I guess, like a maraca or something. So they wrote that down, they passed it to the left, the person read shaker, the next person drew this. Which then you could tell they took a lot of time, and careful attention to draw this look at the precision the wavy lines and so and so they took that they drew it they passed it on to the next person the next person saw that and this was their guess they said it's holding heads <laughs> because you know that's a thing it's, it's something you do our staff is morbid alright so then it goes from holding heads the next person drew this <laughs> which, which is actually pretty good drawing you have to admit it that's pretty good and that went from that to the final round, someone said, heads on a plate, <laughs> which looks like heads on, heads on a plate. And, and, so, and so here's the point, right? It starts off as bagpipes, it turns into heads on a plate. That's <laughs> after eight translations. And so a lot of people are like, that's eight translations. The Bible, man, this thing has got to be so polluted, so convoluted, so many additions, so many things. And, and listen, let me just help you with that, all right? that that understanding that the Bible, the Bible we have is a product of a game like telephone is completely wrong. It's the furthest thing from how we got the Bible that we got. Let me give you a better illustration of how we got the Bible that we did, all right? Um, Let me just uh, give you a hypothetical. Let's say that I was to give you a story. And so I'll put just a story up on the screen. Here's here's just a, a quick story I made up. Billy went to the store. Billy bought bacon. Billy was happy, okay? True story. And uh, Okay, so let's say I put that story up on, on the PowerPoint. And now let's say that I asked everyone in this room, everyone in this service and in the next service, I said, I want you to get out a pen, I want you to get out a note card, and I want you to as meticulously and carefully as you possibly can, I want you to copy that verbatim, word for word. Okay. And let's say you did that, both of our services. And then let's say I said, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to find four other people. And I want you to have them take that, and I want them to copy that meticulously, right? I want you to double-check their work, check check every punctuation mark and everything, all right? And let's say they did that, all right? Now we have thousands of copies of this little story. Now let's say that after that happens, a month from now, there's a cataclysmic earthquake, and we all die, right? Very morbid illustration, but just for the sake of illustration, let's say that happens. So we're all gone. And let's say that civilization now rebuilds itself. And a thousand years later, there's archaeologists, and they're diggling, digging through all this rubble in northeast Ohio, and they keep finding this story. Right? Billy went to the store. Billy bought bacon. Billy was happy. Billy found his... Billy found his. Okay, now what they're going to do is they're going to collect all of those, and let's say they have hundreds of these. They're going to compare and contrast those, and through that, that process of comparing and contrasting, they're going to come up with what they believe is most likely to be the original message that was written, right? And as you guys know, the more manuscripts you have, the more likely it's going to be that you're gonna get to the real meaning. Now, there might be spelling errors and there might be, you know, some people might write illegibly and so it's harder, but what they're gonna do is they're gonna look at all of them they're gonna compare and contrast them to come up with what they believe is the original message. Now, this process, I just wanna let you know, is something that's called textual criticism. And this is done for every writing of antiquity that exists. What they do is they collect ancient writings. They call them ancient manuscripts. They look at them and they compare them. And the more they have, the the more um, accuracy they can determine what the original saying was. So let me just give you some examples comparatively. I want to compare five books of antiquity that were written in ancient times. And I just want to show you the resources that textual critics have. So Plato's writings, Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars, Shakespeare's plays, all 37, Homer's The Iliad, and The New Testament. Okay. With Plato's writings, we have seven ancient manuscripts that have been discovered. And what they do, textual critics take those, they compare and they contrast them, and they say based on these seven documents, we believe that the most close to the original of what Plato probably wrote was probably something like this, based on the comparison of these seven documents. All right? um, and Julius Caesar's The Gallic Wars, very widely accepted document uh, of antiquity. There are ten There are 10 manuscripts that they have to compare and contrast to, to determine what the original writing actually was. With Shakespeare's plays, there are zero manuscripts. We have no manuscripts of any of Shakespeare's plays, which probably means that the the plays that we have today are probably disjointed from what the originals really were written. Uh, Homer's the Iliad, which is one of the most widely accepted, probably the most widely accepted aside from the Bible, writing of antiquity, has uh, 643 ancient manuscripts, textual critics can say with a great amount of accuracy, uh, we believe very, very strongly that this is as close to the original as you can possibly come because they have so many different documents they can compare to. Now, just to give you some sense of scale, the New Testament has 5,366. This is the New Testament alone. I'll talk about the Old Testament in a second. 5,366 ancient manuscripts that are available to us. That is, written in Greek, fragments or whole books that we have of the New Testament. And if you, not only that, but if you were to take not simply the Greek manuscripts that we have, but if you were to take some of the other manuscripts that were translations from other different languages, we would have 25,000 manuscripts to go on. You compile that with the early church fathers quotations of the Bible, you have over a million manuscripts. Now, here's the crazy part. When you take those, those manuscripts, when, when textual critics take those 5,366 manuscripts and the 25,000 uh, uh, additional ones, and they compare and contrast those to each other, do you know what the, point, the, the percentage of agreement is? 28.3% agreement between those documents. And of the 1.7% disagreement, it's, it's things that are minor, like, like uh, punctuation, punctuation, like spelling a word one way rather than another, but you don't lose the meaning, like saying Christ Jesus instead of saying Jesus Christ. And look, what all that points to is that textual critics look at this book, the New Testament in particular, and they say this is the most preserved, accurate writing of antiquity that we have by and large, by a landslide. That's just the New Testament. I go on about the Old Testament. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton ton of time to go on that, but the Old Testament thousands of manuscripts. They're still discovering manuscripts. In fact, in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 50s, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which included several books from the Old Testament, fragments from the Old Testament. The entire book of Isaiah has been found there. The Dead Sea Scrolls were dated about 200 BC. They were discovered in the 1940s. In fact, one of the most special moments that I had um, kind of in my Bible career was I got to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, man, it was incredible just to see these things because when they look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and they compare them to the other thousands of documents they have in the Old Testament, 95% agreement. I mean, this is, for textual critics, this is, this is like an airtight thing. In fact, um, one textual critic, John War- uh, Warwick Montgomery, said this. He said, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Basically, what he's saying is, if you're going to deny the accuracy of the New Testament, you might as well dismiss all of the books of antiquity, because this one has the most credibility, as it relates to any of them—the New Testament, and the Old Testament. So, what are the things that you can be sure of? You might disagree with the message of the Bible. And that's a whole other issue, which we'll get into as well. You might disagree with the message but the one thing you can't disagree with is that this is, is, these 66 documents are the best preserved um, of any writing of antiquity. One one scholar said it this way. He said, a lot of people have a hard time believing the Bible because it contains miracles. He said, I believe the miracle is the Bible itself. The way that it's been preserved and handed down and it's just remarkable um, what we have in front of us. And um, And so how did we get this library? Well, one of the ways we got it, as we mentioned, is that it has been passed down, recognized from generation to generation. And the other reason that we have the Bible that we have is because these manuscripts were scrutinized through early councils. Um, There was several early councils in the church that scrutinized the books of the Bible to make sure that they were legitimate, they were accurate. Um, They call this process canonization. Some of you may have heard that before. Is this book canonical? Is it considered part of the canon? The word canon, what that means, is it simply means measuring stick. And basically what these councils would do is they would say, are these, do these books measure up, man? Like, are they, are, were they written at the right time? Uh, were they accepted by the right community? Do they contradict themselves or other books? And these councils would oftentimes kind of guess on that. And so the reason we have 39 books in the Old Testament and we have 27 uh, manuscripts in the New Testament are because these councils have basically verified these books of the Bible. Some of you might say, well, aren't there other Gospels that aren't included in the Bible? Like, didn't I hear there's like a Gospel of Thomas, and there's like a Gospel of Judas, there's like all these other Gospels, and and, and like the Bible writers only pick these ones to focus on because they wanted to. And and didn't I hear there's other books of the Old Testament, like some Old Testaments have other books? Yeah, yeah, okay, so that's called um, the books of the Old Testament that are extra books of the Old Testament, they call those the Apocrypha. The extra books of the New Testament, they call them pseudopographical texts. And basically what these councils have done is these councils have sat down and they have scrutinized every book of the Bible and have said, man, does this thing line up? Does it measure up um, to historical accuracy? Is it written at the right time and those type of things? And they've dismissed books that they believe don't belong in the Bible for those reasons. Now, once again, we don't have a ton of time to get in all those councils, but if you have more questions, you can text those in as well. So how did we get the Bible that we got? It's been passed down generation to generation, recognized, men have lived by and died for it. In addition to that, it's been scrutinized by councils. That's how we have the 39 manuscripts of the Old Testament. We have the 27 manuscripts of the New Testament. So that's a basic question. What is the Bible? There you go, real, real brief answer. Now let me ask another really basic and important foundational question. And here's the second question I wanna deal with and then we'll be finished. The second question is just this, is why read the Bible? so what is the Bible? We talked about it, well-preserved, 66 manuscripts have been scrutinized, and we can rely on those, we can trust the accuracy of at least the writing of them, even if you disagree with the message of it. Okay, all right, so why do I read the Bible? Why do we read it? Why do we, every week, pull this book out and look at it and, and, allow, us, and allow it to have authority in our lives, to guide us and to direct us? Why would we say we should live this way and not the way that we think we should live. Why? Well, let me just give you a few observations. gonna give you three on this one. The first one is this. Quite, quite frankly, because of what the Bible says about itself. Because of what the Bible says about itself. Now, some of you might say, well, that sounds like circular reasoning, right? Oh, so the Bible, I should believe the Bible because the Bible says I should believe the Bible. But listen, this is important because of all of the sacred writings of other, every other religion, the major world religions that are out there, none of them claim to be what the Bible claims to be. The Bible says stuff about itself um, that is just so strong. And so let me just give you a few few places where we see this. So I'll I'll quote to you from Psalm 19. This is David, King David in this Psalm. And he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, which would have been what he had access to. Here's what he says. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now catch this. He doesn't say the writings of Moses are good. He says, now this is the Lord's law. This is God's word. It's perfect. Look what he says. He says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It's enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and they are, and, and of them there are righteousness. They are more precious than gold, more pure than gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And you see what David is saying here. He's saying, man, th- this book is God's law. It's God's precepts. It's God's word, and, and it brings joy to me when I live according to it. It brings life to me. This is more precious. This is a king. This is more precious to me than gold, than wealth. It is sweeter than and honey, And this is just a sampling, by the way, of, of the many, many, many things the Bible says about itself. Did you know that over 4,000 times in the Old Testament, the Bible says God said? Over 4,000 times, thus saith the Lord, or God said. This is not simply a book that claims to be a, a, a book where men write about God. This is a book in which we see where God writes through men. It's what it claims about itself. There's a big difference between those things. I'll give you another example. First Peter chapter one, verse 20 to 21. The apostle Peter says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets though human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is saying here is what a bunch of other authors of the Bible say. What they're saying is this, is the Bible is not a book. It's not books that are written by men about God. It's a book that's written by God through men. Never once do the writers deny that the human agency was involved, but they always point to the divine origin, that this is, a, this, this is God's word to us. That's what they believed about it. Check out what, uh, what Paul says in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, and we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in those who believe. The Apostle Paul confirmed it. The Apostle Peter confirmed it. David believed it. These men gave their lives for it. Hebrews chapter 4.12, I'll give you one more. Hebrews 4.12, some of you guys might know this. For the word of God is active and alive it's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, some of you read that, and you're like, yeah, I know that verse. But some of you know this, right? You've encountered the Bible in this way, and you have felt its penetrating effect, that this is not just some cold, stale ancient manuscript, this thing is alive and it is active. First Timothy says, this word is God breathed, man. This is his word. And so the Bible says some pretty crazy stuff about itself. I'll just give you some picture to explain its, its, its power, the powerful nature of the Bible. The Bible describes itself as fire. Uh, to describe its penetrating nature, the Bible calls itself a sword. To explain how vital it is for, its, for life, the Bible calls itself bread, water, milk, and food to talk about how necessary it is to see things accurately. The Bible describes the Bible as a light. It describes itself as a mirror in which we look at ourselves and assess ourselves. To describe how valuable this is, the Bible says about itself that it's more precious than gold. And to describe how satisfying and delightful it is, it says that it's sweeter than honey. So taste and see, that's what the Bible says about itself. No other ancient book of antiquity, no other religious writing claims the things that the Bible Claim. So one of the reasons that we should read it, honestly, is because of what it says about itself. And and even if you're like, I don't know if I agree with it, sometimes it's worth reading just to see if it's true. And so one of the reasons we read it is because what the Bible says about itself. But that's not the only reason we read it. Another reason we read it, quite honestly, is because of this, because of its historical and literary reliability and accuracy. Um, if, If it was simply that the Bible said things about itself, but the book was full of errors and contradictions and it was historically inaccurate, we could dismiss it altogether. But the reality is there are so many external proofs that the Bible is an accurate book. It's an accurate transcript, it's an accurate library, right? And so for example, archeologists have long believed that they would disprove the Bible. But what they found is the opposite, that every archeological dig that they've done mostly affirms the Bible. There has never been an archeological dig that has contradicted the Bible. In fact, archaeologists, even if they don't believe the Bible, use the Bible because they look at the chronology, the history, they look at the genealogies, the places and the people and the times, and they will often be informed by what the Bible teaches. And so the Bible doesn't, isn't disjointed from history, but instead it is verified by history we talked a little bit already about, um, about the ancient manuscripts. We talked a little bit about textual criticism. And from that vantage point, this is the most reliable book from antiquity that we have to look back at its originals. And in addition to all of that, I would say that probably one of the greatest external proofs of the Bible is prophecy. And uh, we'll get into this a little bit later. But did you guys know that there are over 2,500 foreshadowings in the Bible about future events? And of those 2,500, 2,000 of them have already occurred. In fact, man, you just want to read a little bit on this. There are over 300 prophecies that were made about Jesus Christ, about his life, his death, and his resurrection, that were said about him hundreds of years before he was born. And I mean specifics. 300. And sometime this week, if you're looking for some, some information, man, read Isaiah 53. Read Micah chapter five. Just read those. They are both written 700 years before Jesus shows up. And they speak with a high amount of specificity about the life of Jesus. He'd be born in Bethlehem. They talk about his crucifixion. They talk about how, how um, he was sold for 30 she- shekels of silver. They talk about how they, they gambled for his clothes. I mean, just the minor, 300 of these things. And when you begin to look at that, you, you start to become suspicious that maybe we're dealing with more than just some old book, something about it. So why do we read it? We read it because of what it says about itself. We read it because there's a high amount of external resources that verify the historicity and authenticity of it as well. And then lastly, and really I think most importantly, the reason we read it is because it has the power to change your life. This collection of manuscripts that we have right now has the power to absolutely transform your life. Listen, I, I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't know if this is always true, but in my experience, I have found this to be the case 100% of the time, that the biggest critics that I've met of the Bible, the ones who think it's outdated and regressive and an obstacle to human advancement, the people that I've met who, who dismiss it and say it's full of contradictions and errors, the people who I've met who said, ah, just, this is just a bunch of myths and those kind of things. hundred percent, and my, this is just my experience, hundred percent of the time when I've met those people, they have never read it. Never read the book. They're going off of someone else's argument that they heard on some Newsweek article or they, they saw somewhere on, on you know, some show or whatever it was, and they start to cite those things. And if they do read it, they only read one little verse out of context to make a point. That's what I've experienced. That's just my experience that I've seen before. In fact, there's been research that's been done recently. There was an article in 2014 called The State of the Church by the Barna Group. And in that, they basically said this. They said that out of, in Americans, one in four say they've never read the Bible. Never. And of the three that do, one in five of those only reads it once or twice a year. And so the truth is, many people just don't read the thing don't read the thing, don't come to it. And the reality is that one of the greatest evidences of the Bible's transformational power is the ability it has to change your life. Now, undoubtedly, I'll admit it, there have been some very irresponsible things that have been done in the name of this book, that is true. But most of those irresponsible things, when you look at them, it can be pointed to a person who had an agenda and put that into the Bible rather than looking at the Bible and trying to pull its meaning out, right? And and so this book has power to absolutely transform your life. There was a, um, a research uh, study that was done back in 2009 called Reveal. Bill Hybels and his team studied hundreds of churches, and basically they were trying to figure out what helps people grow spiritually. And what they found out shouldn't be surprising to us, but it was staggering. They found this. They said, indeed, one of Reveal's key discoveries is that the personal time devoted to reflecting on Scripture is far and away the most powerful catalyst for spiritual growth. What they said is, when people get in their Bible, it is the strongest catalyst for spiritual growth above any other discipline a person can have. Look how they conclude. This means it has twice the power of any other spiritual practice to accelerate spiritual growth in spiritually mature people. And what they found shouldn't surprise us, that you want to grow? You want to grow? You want to grow spiritually? You wanna get stronger in your relationship with God? And you get, you get in this, Right, You spend time in this. It has the ability to absolutely change you. You might have doubts, you might have criticisms, but have you read it, right? And when you read it, I think you'll come and you'll see that it is thing is like honey. It's sweeter than honey, it's delightful. It brings life to you. And, and listen, I'm just gonna show my hand a little bit. All right, So we're doing 90 days in this series, and let me just tell you what we're trying to do. Okay? This whole thing's a ploy. It's going to let you in. I'm try- we have an agenda. I'm just going to let you know what it is. Here's my agenda. We want you to read your Bible. Okay? That's it. We just want you to read your Bibles. Like for real. want you to read it. And, and we've created so many handles for you to do that. Let me just talk about a few of them. If you guys look in your programs for just a minute, you probably saw that there's a reading plan in there. This is, there's not just one reading plan. This is several reading plans, okay? There, there's a bunch in here. Uh, there's a reading plan for the whole Bible. If you're, like, if you're like pro-ultimate Captain Turbo, and you're like, I'm gonna read the whole Bible in 90 days, more power to you, let's do it, okay? It's awesome. Now, mind you, I just wanna tell you that if you're gonna read the whole Bible, it's a lot, all right? I'm just not gonna lie to you. 90 days, it's like 13 chapters of the Bible a day, And so that's gonna take a little bit of time. I'm not discouraging you to do it, do it. But you should know that if you're reading that much, you're probably not gonna retain a bunch and that's okay because sometimes it's good just to get an overview of something, to familiarize with something. So for some of you, if you're like, I've never read through the Bible, I'm just gonna do it. Then do it, I encourage you to do it. For some of you, if you're like, you know what? I think I need to just kind of start maybe, maybe somewhere a little bit easier for me. How about this? How about read the New Testament? And over 90 days, that amounts to about two chapters a day, two to three chapters a day. And if you've never read the Bible, a chapter is not like a full chapter in a book. It's more like a few paragraphs. And so you can read that. Um, There is, if you're uh, parents and you have little kids, um, how about this? There's a reading plan there where we have, we've uh, recommended a Bible called the Storybook Bible. It's an awesome little Bible. And you can read that with your family. In fact, if you go out into our uh, cafe after we're done to the Welcome Center, check this out. We even made little maps. Look at this thing. And this is a map where you can track every day you're reading for 90 days. And you and your kids, or even if you're an adult and you just like this, you can take one of those. (laughs) And you can mark all the way through a day just so you can see your progress. And then here's something really cool. You guys want to hear something neat? On the back side of this, if you look in those reading plans, there's a picture of these badges. You guys see these? Now, check this out. Those all kind of explain the the different uh, books of the Bible and the different um, categories. Three of those badges, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the John and Romans badge, depending on what reading plan you do, if you complete that reading plan and you let us know you did, we will literally physically give you a badge. Like I'm talking like a sewn iron-on badge, right? I'm talking full force. And so some of you are like, that's corny. And I'm like, I don't care, all right? Because for someone, it might make you read your Bible. So I hope you guys get it, right? This is all a ploy. You're like, I don't, I, I don't, I, I want to read the Bible. I don't know where to start. Here's a reading plan. You're like, yeah, but I want to track my progress. Here's a map. You're like, yeah, but what am I going to get? We'll give you a badge, right? Read the Bible. Read it, all right? And that, that's it. And listen, here's the, yeah, we'll clap Bible. the Bible. That's good. All right, so get in it, read it. It has power to change your life. Now, one last thing. I'll ask the band to come up now because I've gone way too long. I'll ask the band to get up here. If you are still in a place where you're questioning the Bible, you're like, I'm investigating Jesus. I don't know what I believe. I don't know if I buy this whole thing, right? Listen, here's the good news. You don't have to believe it to read it. You don't have to. And you actually have my permission to read it and doubt it and question it and text it But I believe honestly that if you would spend the next 90 days, and even if you're investigating and you're not sure you believe it, if you would engage in it, I honestly believe that by the end of this 90 days, you will change. You will change. So why don't you taste and see? Because the word of God is good. Let's pray. Jesus, you're good to us, and you've, man, you've given us so many resources in this life to grow. You've given us each other, and we need each other. God, you've given us us your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us in this life, Father. You've given us our church, which is such an amazing gift, and you've given us your word. And Lord, I know that um, right now we live in a culture where we've lost confidence in the Bible. Father, I pray you'd restore our confidence in your word. Help us to live according to it, God. I pray we'd be a group of people um, who trust and rely it. Father, for for those who have doubts and are confused by it and and they still have, I pray that that wouldn't cause them to distance themselves from it, but instead that they would lean into it and read it. Father, help us as we go through this series to open our eyes and guide us and direct us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.